X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Monday, April 5th. Today, back in the day in 1972, a windy spring thunderstorm spawned a tornado that tore through Portland and Vancouver, leaving chaos in its wake. The storm began west of Portland, where it initially damaged a lumber warehouse in Tigard, before moving east, uprooting trees along the way. The tornado itself first touched down on the banks of the Columbia River, damaging boats along Northeast Marine Drive before proceeding through open water to Vancouver. A discount store and bowling alley on opposing sides of Northeast 72nd Avenue in Vancouver received the brunt of the damage from the tornado. Six people were killed as both businesses were completely flattened by the funnel cloud. In addition, the roof of nearby Peter Skeen Ogden Elementary School was torn off and thrown northward. The lives of all 541 students and 21 faculty members inside the school were miraculously spared. The 1972 Portland-Vancouver tornado was the most devastating in Oregon's recorded weather history. Over 300 people were injured in addition to the six deaths. On today's episode, we're going to start with your quick six news headlines, and then we have an interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicholas Kristof. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Three city council members rejected the plan for another gun violence prevention team. Mayor Ted Wheeler has been promoting a $2 million plan to address the city's gun violence with a new police-centered prevention team. Carmen Rubio, Mingus Maps, and Dan Ryan, the three newest commissioners, shared a memo with Wheeler and Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. The memo advocated for a community-centered and transparent approach to addressing gun violence. The memo says, quote, There is agreement among the majority of council that conversations focused on increased funding for police engagement is the wrong place to start. One suggestion offered by the commissioners is spending the money instead on community programs focused on gun violence. They also specify that any plan to confront gun violence should be informed by those who are affected by it. There has been no alternate plan regarding gun violence since the first GVRT was disbanded in June of 2020. In 2020, Portland experienced almost 900 shootings, over double the amount in 2019. Wheeler's new GVRT was first proposed by a group called the Interfaith Peace and Action Collaborative, along with the Portland Police Bureau. The belief is that the quickest way to reduce gun violence is to expand the scope of the Portland Police Bureau. The three commissioners offered their own proposal, which called for, among other things, distributing $3.5 million to community groups working with people affected by gun violence, increasing the number of Portland park rangers, and establish a timeline to develop a comprehensive community safety transformation plan. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 404 new COVID-19 cases Sunday. It reported one new death. The state total is now at 2,392 deaths. Since the pandemic began, there have been a total of 166,882 COVID cases in Oregon. This means about 4% of Oregonians have contracted the virus. 
Oregon accounts for about 0.5% of the over 30 million cases nationwide. There is a potential fourth surge of COVID-19, and it could be starting despite vaccinations. Governor Kate Brown characterized the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic as a race between vaccines and the virus on Friday. Public health officials have long predicted that growing public confidence would give way to higher case counts as social distancing and masking precautions are abandoned. Many social restrictions are beginning to loosen as more Oregonians are vaccinated against COVID-19. Children are beginning to head back to schools across the state for in-person learning, while restaurants, bars, and gyms welcome more patrons inside. Oregon COVID-19 cases are up 28% this week from the previous week, while coronavirus-related hospitalizations went up 17% in March. These new bumps come despite the fact that almost one-fifth of Oregon's adults are now fully vaccinated against the virus. Additionally, nearly one-third of Oregon adults have received at least one inoculation dose. Frontline workers and family members in the same household become eligible for appointments statewide today, although they have begun vaccinating them in most Oregon counties already. Oregonians 16 years and older with underlying health conditions also become eligible for vaccinations today. The state has expanded its list of conditions to match that of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Oregon's list now includes former or current smokers who have previously been excluded. Nike has not paid any money in federal taxes for three years. According to a study conducted by the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, Nike has not had to pay a tax bill promoted by former President Donald Trump. Nike saw a combined revenue of $4.1 billion over the last three years. Nike, which is based in Beaverton, was one of a list of 55 major corporations found to not have paid a single cent in federal taxes under the Trump law. President Joe Biden is planning a new corporate tax plan that would eliminate the tax breaks that let major corporations pay tax rates of zero. The company wrote off a federal research and experimentation credit. Under the credit, companies can write off money that is directed towards research and new projects. In November, 700 employees were laid off from that company headquartered in Beaverton. Oregon lawmakers could strip state of power to shield public health information, including COVID-19 data. Oregon legislators may force transparency on the state's largest health agency by stripping down a law that allows officials to conceal public health information. According to State Senator Michael Dembro, Democrat of Portland, under State Senate Bill 719, when questions are asked, unless there's a reason not to, then information will be released, he said. Under the current version of the bill, the Oregon Health Authority and county agencies would have to provide summarized health data in response to public inquiries. The only exception is in cases where a legitimate risk is posed, especially when an individual's identity could become compromised to the public. OHA is Oregon's conclusive cachet of public health information, collecting data from coronavirus testing labs, contact tracers, providers who give COVID-19 shots, and other sources. It is widely assumed that this aggregate agency data can reveal the scope of the disease's impact and help the public evaluate health officials' decisions. A bill to ease conversion of Oregon motels to emergency shelter and low-cost housing 
halfway through the state legislature. The Oregon House of Representatives voted 42 to 11 on House Bill 3261 last Wednesday, sending the bill to the state Senate. The bill would exclude the conversion of motels purchased for emergency shelters or low-cost housing from land use challenges in cities and counties. State lawmakers made federal money available for such purchases last year. These allotments were made under Project Turnkey, which is overseen by the Oregon Community Foundation. The bill applies to structures inside urban growth boundaries and outside of areas meant for industrial use. They must have access to transportation and to be outside of floodplains and other hazardous areas. Local governments can still apply reasonable site and design standards, such as building codes and occupancy limits. Housing is deemed affordable if qualifying residents earn less than 60% of the area median income. The bill is meant to aid Oregonians who are displaced from their homes as a result of a natural disaster or state of emergency, including those whose rural communities were wiped during the Labor Day fires that destroyed thousands of homes late last September. Many of the displaced residents of the fires were low-income families who were left with few affordable options for temporary housing. And finally, some good news. Oregon's college athletes could soon be paid for their participation in university sports programs. State lawmakers will soon join a nationwide debate with a new bill that would allow some athletes to be compensated if sports programs use their images or names in promotional materials. State Senate Bill 5, introduced on March 24th, would allow collegiate athletes to monetize the use of their likeness, including royalty payments for college merchandise sold with the athlete's name or image. The bill would also allow athletes to retain a professional agent while in college. It would bar athletes from signing outside contracts for the use of their likeness that may contradict school or team rules. According to Senate President Peter Courtney, the bill is similar to legislation that has already passed in over 30 states, such as California's 2019 Fair Pay to Play Act and New York's 2020 Collegiate Athletic Participation Compensation Act. Similar legislation has also been introduced in the U.S. House and Senate. The Oregon Senate Committee on Rules plans an online public hearing on this piece of legislation at 1 p.m. on April 8th. A court ruling is expected later this year. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Now we will hear from Nicholas Kristoff, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. He spoke with host Christine Alexander about his recent writing, including an op-ed in the New York Times titled, Can Biden Save Americans Like My Old Pal Mike? Here are Nicholas and Christine. Our guest now, I'm happy to have him here, Nicholas Kristoff, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and a columnist from the New York Times. His op-ed last month, Can Biden Save Americans Like My Old Pal Mike, spurred me to check out his most recent book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. And I asked him to be on the show. He co-wrote the book with his wife, Cheryl Wudun. They are also the first husband and wife team to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism for their coverage of China's Tiananmen Square democracy movement. Good morning. Welcome to X-Ray, Mr. Kristoff. Hi, good morning. Nice to talk to you, and please just call me Nick. Okay, thank you. Nick, I'm so thrilled to have you on the air. We've um, been talking this morning about 
the decimation of small logging towns across Oregon and um, this possibility of new a new timber tax on the corporations. Um, and your book, Tightrope, is an astonishing portrayal of what's happened to small towns um, across the United States, but particularly here in Oregon. Um, I don't think that we realized that it was so bad, and seeing you spell it out as you did in the book was was eye-opening. So the op-ed you wrote, um, as I mentioned, was, Can Biden Save Americans Like My Old Pal Mike? Can you tell us about Mike? Yeah, so, um, well, I'm speaking to you right now from the family farm in uh, outside Yamhill, between Yamhill and Gaston. Um, and, you know, we're only about an hour out of uh, Portland, but it in some ways is and it's really outside of the commuting orbit. It's really kind of a different uh, different world. Mm. And so the closest uh, home to this farm when I was growing up was that of the Step family. It was uh, just down the road. I'd uh, go by it on the way to the school bus. And so I'd pick up uh, Mike uh, Step and his uh, older brother, Bobby, on that way down to the bus and then we'd walk back together uh, on the way back uh, their dad uh, was a korean war hero who had who worked uh, had a good union job at a uh, at a sawmill and you know they were very much upwardly mobile uh, they bought their own home and they were full of promise about the opportunities for kids like mike and bobby as were we all and then um Mike uh, didn't graduate from high school like a lot of kids. I think on the assumption that, you know, his dad hadn't graduated either and had got this good union job and had mm. managed to create something, you know, approximating a good middle-class life. And uh, same with Bobby. Um, then those jobs just disappeared. And so um, Bobby ended up serving a life sentence in uh, prison in Colorado uh, he was actually just released uh, from that. And Mike Mike ended up um, wrestling with alcohol and uh, meth, self-medicating, I think because of his economic struggles, uh, did not get a mill job. And um, he uh, left his, he was basically kicked out by his wife because he was abusing drugs. He ended up homeless in McMinnville. And um, in uh, December, he he passed away at the age just after turning 55. Oh my God! Um, and um, you know it. And it, you know there are so many kids like Mike. The one of the points we were making in Tightrope when I you know when I went back and looked at the kids on my old number six school bus in in the Anhol Carlton district. Um, uh, more than a quarter of the kids are now dead from uh, deaths of despair, uh, drugs, alcohol, and suicide. And, um, you know, on the one hand, Portland, so close to us, has done so well economically. Mm -hmm. Bend has done really well. And yet these you know, working-class communities have just been through the ringer. And the toll is, um, it's you know, it's measured in overdoses and suicides and, uh, and and 
kind of a dysfunctional family. And it's, you know, it's hard to, I'm really proud of Yamhill. I love Yamhill. Uh, <laughs> and so it's hard to talk about this side of it, but it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Well, it's reflective of so many other communities across the country. And I know in the book, you talk about Oklahoma and, and some others, and it really is a portrait of what's happened. And, and you mentioned good paying union jobs. I, the news today of Amazon, um, uh, an Amazon factory voting for an Amazon warehouse, excuse me, voting to unionize um, 6,000 workers voting. We won't know the results for a couple more days, but that's sort of a, a hopeful note. Um, some of the facts in the book and the op-ed are pretty eye-opening about, um, you say, the federal minimum wage of 1968, if it had kept pace with inflation and productivity, would be $22 an hour now rather than seven twenty-five. That's right. I mean, the if you try to understand, I think, what went wrong with so much of rural America, what's behind the, and not just rural America, um, you know, I think it has to do in many ways with the loss of well-paying jobs for working class Americans. And, you know, I look back and in the 1990s in places like Yamhill, there was a lot of harsh rhetoric toward African-American communities. And a lot of people saying, oh, you know, the struggles in those areas, they're because, you know, of deadbeat dads, because of bad choices, uh, because of irresponsible behavior. And meanwhile, there was a great Harvard sociologist, um, uh, William Julius Wilson, said, no, it's because of the loss of, of good jobs. And he was exactly right, because when jobs, good jobs left Yam Hill and when they left West Virginia and when they left, you know, Maine, when they left lily white communities, then the same things happened. And um, if you if we try to figure out how to repair these areas, part of that has to be about getting uh, good paying jobs again, which, which is also related to, you know, getting better education so people can fill those jobs. And, you know, Oregon has a real problem, I think, in the long run with its education system. It does. We recently had a guest on talking about that and how things have improved um, with some programs in recent years. But but as you say in your book, one in seven American kids don't graduate high school. And that's got to be a part, a, a big part of the problem. I also wanted to mention, you mentioned in the book, um, a, a number of historic programs in the past that help create opportunity and wealth for average Americans. One, uh, one that you mentioned is one of my favorites, which is rural electrification. And I've said for years that we need to have a similar program for bro- broadband to increase opportunity. Absolutely. So what do you think about that? It's and what great, great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> you were so right on this. <laughs> you know, I do, you know, I do CNN hits periodically from the from the farmhouse here in Yamhill. And <laughs> it's always like a prayer that uh, that it doesn't freeze. Uh, the signal doesn't freeze. And yeah, so, you know, I, look, Yamhill is a conservative area. I tend to be pretty progressive, and I have these arguments with friends about, you know, who think that uh, look, we were, you know, we're pioneer stock. We, you know, we didn't depend on anybody. We built everything ourselves. And I, I, you know, I point out that sure that I mean the pioneers were heroic when they came out to Oregon. But why did they come out to Oregon? They came out because of a of a government program for the disadvantaged, which was the Homestead Homestead Act. Act. Yeah, and. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, uh, Oregon was transformed by uh, things like uh, rural electrification. If, you know, it, in Yamhill, there were some initial efforts in uh, the 1920s to people put 
um, these little generators on streams, and that would work for you know a few months in the spring to have an electric light bulb in your house. But it was only when FDR created rural electrification that we got electricity to areas like this, and productivity hugely increased. And now, in 2021, there's some areas here in Yam Hill that have neither uh, internet access nor cell phone access. You know, how, what are kids supposed to do? How can they? Um, you can't function in today's society without those. It's a huge loss of opportunity for those kids. But also, you know, one of the things we learned historically is that when you invest in productivity, uh, then you're also benefiting the entire community. Um, you know, that rural electrification didn't just help rural Americans. It helped all of America. Um, the GI Bill of Rights was transformative, and that was, again, because it invested in in disadvantaged Americans and helped them get to college and buy a first home. And, you know, I think we need a little bit more of that, a little less pointing fingers and a little more helping hands. My guest is Nicholas Kristoff, a Pulitzer Prize winner and author of a new book, a recent book. It came out last year, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, um, talking to us from Yam Hill, his, his home home sweet home and um you mentioned uh, programs and in the op-ed you say that president biden's american rescue plan contains the most serious anti-poverty program especially for children in at least half a century and you mentioned fdr i i don't know if biden can can match fdr but i have great hope for what he may be able to do and i think we're seeing signals of that especially with things like this uh, american rescue plan you wrote the book before um biden was elected so what are your hopes with this new administration and um new awareness so i i really am hopeful christine and you know so I think that what went wrong, look, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just President Trump. It, it was 50 years of the U.S. underinvesting in human capital. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, we, if you look back in the 1960s, we had health outcomes uh, that were similar to those of other industrialized countries. We had education outcomes that were better. And then other countries invested in, uh, in their kids, and uh, we did not. And so we went from having the being number one in the high in the, in the world in high school graduation rates to being um, uh, well down the list. Depends on you know who does the calculation. And so I think that frankly that cycle, that 50-year cycle, was perhaps already ending even before Biden came along. You know, you had mass incarceration was one of our biggest national mistakes, I mm. think. And you had some conservative states like Texas helping lead the way back from that because it was expensive right and um (laughs) and so and i think that also covid kind of underscored to everybody the cost when we're the only advanced country in the world that doesn't have universal paid sick leave when we're the only country that doesn't have universal access to health care and so i'm hoping that there is now going to be this broad effort to invest in uh in you know, in human capital. And look, you know, my, my friends who were on that school bus, who some of whom are still homeless and wrestling with problems, look, it's really pretty hard to help a struggling person in their 40s, 50s, or 60s who's, um, you know, who's been addicted for years or decades. But their kids 
know, those kids who are now on the number six school bus, mm. we have to help those kids now, and we can do that. And it's going to be, we spent so much money as Oregon taxpayers uh, incarcerating my friends. That money would have been so much better off if we'd spent it educating them, getting them through high school, training them for jobs, you know, providing free community college. There's so many things we could have done that, that would have helped my friend Mike and kept him alive and, and helped his kids and, and broken this cycle of poverty. So I, I think we have a fighting chance now of moving in that direction. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, Nick. And and I, I was moved, deeply moved by your op-ed about Mike. And I think many of us know people like Mike. And uh, it really struck a chord with me. At the end of the book, Tightrope, you have, I was thrilled to see that there's an appendix. And you call it 10 steps you can take in the next 10 minutes to make a difference. Can you share just a couple of those with our, our listeners? Yeah, Um so, you know, one is a, a real focus on early childhood and um, um, uh, there, you know, and, and lobbying on that front. And uh, I would really encourage people to reach out uh, to um, their member of Congress, to their state legislators. Uh, you know, Oregon can do much better on that front. And, and now Biden is moving toward proposing a national high quality uh, pre-K uh, so I encourage advocacy on that front. And at a personal level, I'd, I'd encourage uh, some mentoring programs. And um, they can be, you know, even in time of COVID, one can support people through programs like iMentor. Um, uh, CASA is a, you know, it's a hugely important program that helps uh, kids in foster care. Oregon has twice as many kids uh, in foster care per capita as the national average. Uh, CASA is C-A-S-A. Um, you know, th- so uh, there, there's, <laughs> there's so much that, that uh, we can do both in advocacy and in, in personal behavior that will um, make this, you know, cre- help create opportunity and, and help the next generation of, of mics. Nicholas Kristoff has been my guest. His uh, recent book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, it got rave reviews from many, including Bono. He said, this will, this book will shake you. It did me, and that is the point. Nicholas Kristoff, thank you so much for joining us this morning, and um, I hope you enjoy your farm out there. You're doing your part. I saw in that last uh, part that you are um, uh, changing your family farm over to cider. Uh, you took the cherry orchard from uh, to cider apples and wine grapes. That's right, It's and it's been, boy, it's been a difficult transition. We built a an impregnable uh, deer fence uh, around our cider apples, Christine. We managed to fence some deer inside. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's been been a, boy, it's been a challenge, Uh, but it's it's fun. Well, thank you, Nicholas Kristoff, and um, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Take care, Christine. Thank you. Thanks to Nicholas for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.